the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. You ready? Virgin Radio Pride. Amazing winners of the Eurovision Song Contest and four moments of LGBTQ plus representation at the world's biggest music event. You heard there Conchita Verst winning for Austria in 2014 with Rise Like a Phoenix, Dana International with Diva for Israel in 1998, Duncan Lawrence with Arcade for the Netherlands in 2019, and Maria Shelefovic with Molitva winning for Serbia in 2007. My name is Steve Holden and I am the host of the official Eurovision Song Contest podcast. And for the next hour here on Virgin Radio Pride, we'll be looking at why our favourite music extravaganza holds such a special place in the hearts of the queer community. We'll be remembering some of your favourite entries, speaking to people for who Eurovision means so much and chatting to artists who took to that huge stage for their country. This is Virgin Radio Pride does Eurovision. Uh-huh. Virgin Radio Pride. Pride. So I've loved the Eurovision Song Contest since I could remember. I'm sure loads of you have as well. I remember watching it with my mum in the 1990s. Sonia was probably my first memory. She represented the UK in 1993, wearing her amazing purple jumpsuit, singing Better the Devil You Know. She came second. I was really young at the time, and I just remember loving the whole setup of the show. The acts, the music, the flags and the countries. I was just getting into pop music at the time, and there was loads on display. I was a long way from discovering who I was. And then a couple of years later, I remember this. Cold classic, Gina G with Ooh Ah Just A Little Bit. What a song. I really wanted it to win, but I was so pleased it got to number one in the UK charts. And then famously, a year later, in 1997, the UK did lift the trophy with Love Shine A Light by Katrina and the Waves. I remember it so well. I watched that contest with my mum 
and I wrote in my diary because I had a diary, didn't we all? Uh, best day ever. And at the time I was a kid, I certainly wasn't out, but I knew I loved Eurovision and I knew there was this special connection. As I got older, I realised that loads of other people loved it too. And then I realised, and I guess this is when the penny dropped, that loads of LGBTQ plus people loved it even more. And it's that discovery, which I'm sure loads of you listening also felt at some point in your life. But before we look back, I want to stay in 2022. Hey! Virgin Radio Pride. Ukraine won this year's contest in Turin. Kalish Orchestra with Stefania and Sam Ryder getting that amazing second place for the UK. As a result, next year's contest is going to be in the United Kingdom. Really exciting. This year's contest felt special. I was there for two weeks covering it and the solidarity between the contestants and everyone involved in the production was amazing. And there was a really special moment, I feel, when the sisters representing Iceland waved the trans flag as they came out on stage. One of their children is transgender and they told me they wanted to spread this message of love. And what better place to do it on a global stage? I also got to know one of the acts who was out proud with a huge voice. I was told at six years old They'd avoid me if my heart was cold Found it hard to talk and speak my mind They never liked the things that I would like Hey there, it's Sheldon Riley, and you may know me as the contestant from Eurovision Australia 2022, and you're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. Sheldon Riley represented Australia at this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Um, does it feel like Turin was ages ago, but yesterday at exactly the same time? Yeah, it feels exactly like that. Honestly, I thought about it the other day. I'm like, surely it's been like six months, but then it hasn't. But then also it feels so, so, I don't know. It feels so close to me still. But I mean, I've wanted Eurovision forever. So even doing the, you know, the national final here in Australia, like it was this massive like four or five month thing. It's it's taking a while still to go, I actually did it, do you know what I mean? On stage, Sheldon wore this huge, and I mean huge dress. He also wore this dramatic mask, which he took off near the end of the performance. His whole song, Not The Same, was about realizing who he was. We're not the For me, I come from a really religious family, so Eurovision wasn't always quite accessible for me, but I think no one could stop but seeing um, Conchita the first time. You really couldn't hide from it, so it was the first kind of moment. I mean, I'd seen bits and pieces before, but it was the first moment that I went, ah, oh, this is crazy, What? what is this? And um, I don't know, I think that that was the that was kind of the moment for me that I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. How old were you? Can you remember? Maybe like 14. I think I was about 14, 15. 
I think you know with Conchita being worldwide and no one could no one could hide from it um, it was a pretty big deal for me especially at a young age it actually ended up being the year that I came out so yeah I was probably about 14 or 15 how has Eurovision kind of shaped your career? Yeah, uh, it's completely shaped everything that I've ever done. I mean, a lot of the time, before, especially before Eurovision, people knew me from different TV shows. I've done every TV show known to men. I mean, the X Factor, The Voice, I did All Stars, America's Got Talent, I did them all. And every time I did them, I was like, I don't care if I win, I don't care about the prize money, all I care about is can you please just make sure the performances were as Eurovision-esque as possible, as big and crazy and gay as possible. I was given that every time. Some of my most amazing performances I did were inspired by Eurovision performances. Every year I would sit and wait for the next person to inspire me. Like every single year there was someone new that I was just completely obsessed with. So it was such a free space. I'd never seen a world so accepting of everything, not just politically or like, you know, country to country but everything everything was so i don't know so everything was so united and i'd never felt that before you know if if you're watching eurovision at home and you see this guy in this incredible dress that's mm. going to make you um if especially if you're coming to terms with your sexuality that's going to be mm. visibility that you have maybe never experienced before what yeah. did it feel like being on the stage wearing what you were wearing being who you are Honestly, I, 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 undescribable. I, I, it was, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you get so emotional. I don't think anyone will ever understand, unless you've been through it, what it's like growing up in a, in a life where you can't, you literally cannot be yourself. It's just not going to happen. And then to see someone like Conchita do what she does in a full get up, the dress, the everything, the lights, the smoke, the song, everything was so empowering. I promised myself that if I ever was given the chance to do Eurovision, that was exactly what I wanted to do. It's crazy because I didn't actually want to wear a dress. I just kind of promised myself that I would if I was going to, but dresses are so difficult and complicated. I only wanted to wear a dress because I knew my mum and dad wouldn't like it originally, but um, <laughs> thinking back and my dress weighed 40 kilos, I, I was too busy making sure I wasn't going to trip up the stairs, but um, so empowering. It, it, there's, there's nothing in my life that will ever compete with that moment. I, I, I still can't believe I did it. I really don't. It was, it was really freaking hard growing up, wanting to be everything that I am now. And I'm grateful for it every day, but Eurovision's just, I, I still haven't really processed it. I mean, I did literally what I thought was impossible. So do you know what? The general consensus around Eurovision was that apparently I was kind of okay liked or well liked people seemed to think i was a nice guy i thought i took up the entire backstage area took up the entire pathway walking down it took everyone they're really strict with rules at eurovision you're only allowed like two people with you at all times i had like six or maybe even eight people carrying this crazy my outfit was big enough to be a prop on stage but wasn't in short enough to be left on stage for me to get onto it because it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I was I was taking up everybody's space. That dress was amazing and there's more from Sheldon later. This was actually his first interview since Eurovision, so a big thank you to him. Uh, but time for some more queer moments in Eurovision Song Contest history.
It's hard to talk about firsts when it comes to queer representation, but it's common consensus that the first openly gay performer at the contest was Paul Oscar. He represented Iceland in 1997. There he was on a sofa, PVC pants with four women writhing around him. It was so ahead of its time for the Eurovision Song Contest. It didn't do that well that year. But this was in the first year when only a few countries could vote by phone. I think if this song existed now, it would probably do really well because the performance was so standout. The song was Min Hinsti Dance. In 2013, the Eurovision Song Contest had its first same-sex kiss on stage when Krista Siegfrieds performed Marry Me for Finland in a wedding dress, ending up with her kissing her backing singer. Two years later, in 2015, there were briefly two same-sex kisses in the same performance as the two male and two female backing singers paused for a quick one in Lithuania's performance. And this year, Achille Lauro, representing San Marino, had a little kiss with his guitarist. In 2018, another huge moment of LGBTQ plus visibility was Ryan O'Shaughnessy's performance of Together for Ireland. His two dancers were men interpreting the romance of the song by being this beautiful couple on stage who dance together. Just listen to the crowd when we first get a glimpse of them as they walk over the bridge. I thought we'd be together till we die. This has all been in recent years, but if you go back in time, there's queer representation throughout the decades at the Eurovision Song Contest. It just wasn't necessarily out and proud at the time. That's Bob Benny representing Belgium way back in 1959. In 2001, he came out as gay. He wasn't the only person to come out after the contest. Katrina from Katrina and the Waves did the same. But looking back now, there is a long heritage of LGBTQ plus contestants. Virgin Radio. Pride. 
You're listening to a Eurovision Song Contest special here on Virgin Radio Pride. And to discuss a bit more about why it resonates so much with the LGBTQ plus community, I've called up a friend who has Eurovision running through his veins. His name is Rob Holly, and he's the head of content for the Eurovision Song Contest. So for any fans, he is literally living the dream. Rob, our love of the Eurovision Song Contest goes way, way back, and we've known each other for quite a while now. Can you remember your first Eurovision memory? What was it? I think my first Eurovision memory that, that I definitely, definitely watched at the time was the national final competition that selected Love City Groove for the United Kingdom in '95, uh, I think it was. And I remember being desperately sad that uh, Juice and I Need You didn't get through, but um, went on to support Love City Groove anyway. Did you realise, because you were a kid then, what was it about the national final and Eurovision that you connected with? Why did you love it? I think it was just the fact that there was loads of great pop music. Um, and, you know, when you're a kid growing up, you, you just... I, I don't you sort of get into whatever's around at the time in terms of um, pop and uh, what you like listening to. And it was sort of like a, a little platter of different dishes that you could um, enjoy. So you had your Love City Grooves, you, which was sort of a little bit, you know hip-hop rap, I say that, you know, in inverted commas, it was, you know, not particularly hardcore, but it was very different from Juice and the pop that they were producing. I think you had a Samantha Fox ballad in there at the time. You also had an indie band called, oh, I can't remember what they were called, but the, the song was called Someone's at the Door, and that was sort of popular at the time as well. So you just sort of, like, get into this... Um, exciting TV show where there were lots of different genres and styles and they were all competing against one another. And I think that always appeals to kids, competition and pop. Did you then watch the 1995 contest? Can you remember that? I, I think I did. I've got kind of stronger memories of seeing Gina G in Oslo. Um, or was she 1995? Was she no, Gina G was 96. She was 96. So I do remember seeing her on stage and, and kind of following that all the way through. And I was obsessed with Gina G at the time. I remember after the contest, uh, I went to see her on the Big Breakfast Eggs on Legs tour, which came to Oxford that year. Um, so like Eurovision and all of these acts were so like ingrained in the pop charts at the time in, in, in the UK industry that you couldn't get away from it. And so if you did latch onto one bit, you were sort of... Um, you sort of got into all the other different bits and pieces of it as well. Um, so I do remember seeing her and I remember being disappointed that she came quite low down in the scoreboard as well. I had a, a bit of a roller coaster ride my my journey has been with, with the Eurovision Song Contest in that I remember really loving it as a kid and then I went away to university and I sort of fell out of it. I, you know, I went, went to uni, I was in London, I became a, a DJ. Eurovision at the time was not necessarily uh, in with what I was doing. I remember learning about this huge Eurovision community probably in about 2002, 2003 when I had a part-time job at the Retro Bar, which is on the 
Charing Cross Road in London. I think it's like the second or the third Thursday of every month, this big party called Douzepois. And all of the staff were not allowed to take time off whenever that was on because it was so rammed and so busy. You had this tiny little bar down an alley and you'd have hundreds of people kind of streaming outside and being in, you know, indoors and taking up every square inch of, of that venue. It was sort of at the time where the internet was sort of not as big a thing as it is now. So you couldn't share files. You certainly couldn't share videos. And you had these real sort of like obsessed... Um, Euro fans who were getting all the videos of the different song contests from all over the years. They were getting national final videos that, 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 that their friends, um, you know, in the different countries were posting across to them. And people would come to the retro bar, and that's where they get their Eurovision experience. And that's what I sort of had to um, endure during my uni days. I joke about it. We loved working that night because it was just such a sense of occasion. And it was so so busy. Um, but that's when I learned that there was this huge. Uh, community behind it and it was primarily the lgbtq plus community at that point because retro bar is a is a queer venue um and a lot of the the people that were going to it still primarily were um gay men you know the fandom has um, expanded and, and blossomed since those days but um that's when i learned that there was this huge sort of fandom behind the contest why do you think eurovision connects so well with the LGBT plus community? Well, I mean, I, I've got a bit of a theory about this. So I was watching the, the Lionesses win at uh, Wembley and it was just absolutely incredible as a, as a queer person seeing that much sort of success from, I think someone did the stats and like 11 of the players are openly LGBTQ plus. Um, and you just think, wow, we don't have that in the men's game. You don't have openly gay or openly trans or openly queer football players and I think it's only really been you know in the last decade or so in different sports that you are seeing that representation whereas the Eurovision Song Contest has always been a platform for anyone to come and tell their story and for them not only to sort of thrive on stage but to succeed and it, it, it was such a rare sort of mainstream platform for anyone you know whether they're an adult or whether you're growing up to see an lgbtq person on stage absolutely thriving um and you know getting this sort of adoration from from the public getting jewelry points um i i just think it's it, it was such a, a a great affirmative mirror to be able to see all these successful lgbtq acts and i think that's why there's always going to be a connection between the eurovision song contest and the lgbt community and that that works out across other communities of course there are other minority communities that see themselves at eurovision and and that's why it's so you know so loved and so important as a platform <laughs> In 1998, Dana International really broke down barriers, an openly transgender woman on stage winning for Israel with Diva. I think if we looked at the press surrounding her at the time, we'd be truly shocked. But she will go down in history as someone who used the stage for transgender visibility on a global scale. Eurovision Song Contest is very good at putting people on stage and celebrating them and telling their story 
for a, a mainstream audience. And, you know, you do, you look back at that contest and you look back at some of the, the press surrounding it and you look back at um, some of the ways that she was described and, and whatnot. And it's obviously through a 2022 lens, it is uh, less than great, isn't it? But uh, as you're saying, it, it doesn't uh, take away from the fact that she broke down barriers and pushed the boundaries of, of you know, what, what we know and what we accept. And, you know, as a, I would have been 16 in 1998, I come from a small town just outside of Oxford. I would have had no idea what a trans person was, let alone, a, you know, a gay person at that point. It was the 90s were a very, very different time. So to have someone go on stage and to, to sort of bring that conversation into homes across Europe is just an absolutely fantastic, uh, fantastic thing. I also want to mention Nikki Diega, known to most as Nikki Tutorials. In 2021, she became the first trans presenter of the contest in Rotterdam. I interviewed her at the time and she said that every outfit she wore on stage contained somewhere a nod to the colours of the trans flag. And in her words, that was a message of love and solidarity in the face of some countries who would be watching where LGBT rights are certainly not as progressive as they are elsewhere and queer people actually face threats on their life. Hey, hey brother, do you remember when we were kids with no fear? Hey, hey sister, do you believe in the things we dreamt with discover? Hi Steve, it's Suri from UK Eurovision 2018. My experience at Eurovision was career-changing and life-changing in so many ways. As a performer, of course, there's no bigger stage to step onto, and that is such a thrill and honour. But what I never could have anticipated was how much I would gain and learn from the inspiring LGBT plus community within the audience. There is something so precious and powerful about the inclusive, accepting, loving, celebratory atmosphere that is charged not just within the arena and the Eurovision Village, but all across the host city in whichever country. It shouldn't be a rarity, but I do wish we could bottle this up and spread it all across the world outside of the Eurovision bubble. My favourite shows and performances post-Eurovision have been at Pride festivals and LGBT plus venues all across the UK, Europe and America. And I feel so blessed to be welcomed into this most beautiful community of humans and given the opportunity to travel, hear people's stories and experiences and share such special moments together. I know the lyrics of Storm took on a whole new meaning for all of us that night, but when I still, to this day, receive messages saying how, when I powered through finishing that performance with the words, spread your love, hold your head up, don't give up, and how that has given another LGBT plus individual strength to continue through dark moments, be it from judgment or discrimination or other, my heart breaks and yet swells all at once. Hey, 
you know, sometimes it's perhaps easy for naysayers to knock us and say, it's 2022, look how far we've come. And whilst that may stand true in some regards, we still have so far to go, but I do hope we can spread our love and never give up on our precious path through life, expressing ourselves for who we truly are, whomever we love. I wish you all a very safe and happy Pride every month, every day, every moment. And thank you for being you. Lots of love. Thank you to Suri, who is a true ally of the LGBTQ plus community. She performed Storm for the United Kingdom in 2018. We've come a long way over the years. In the 2021 contest, the pansexual flag was shown during the final, held up by one of the Icelandic performers. On the way, I am speaking to another out and proud Eurovision act who joins me to talk about their experience on the contest stage. You ready? Virgin Radio Pride. Welcome back. You are listening to a Virgin Radio Pride special on why the Eurovision Song Contest is loved by so many LGBTQ plus people around the world. My name is Steve Holden and I am the host of the official Eurovision Song Contest podcast. It's time for another contestant now. She has been in the business for 20 years. She rose to fame in the UK on The X Factor. She is a proud member of our community and this was her song in Eurovision. I'm very, very good. All the way from Finland, representing Finland in 2018 now, four years ago. Uh, Sara Alto, um, how are you? And can you believe it's been four years since you took part in Eurovision? Time has really, really gone so quickly. Probably because for the last two years it's been a bit quiet. So I feel like I was just at Eurovision. Oh my God. But yeah. I know. Well, time flies and yeah, the world has changed a lot, but I'll tell you what hasn't changed. And that is the love that Eurovision has around the world and especially with people within the LGBT plus community. Um, When did you first kind of find out about Eurovision? What was your earliest memory of it? Mm, My my first memory is me (laughs) reading newspapers about Dana International winning Eurovision. I just remember looking in, looking at her pictures, being like, oh my God, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And I was so impressed. 
by how she looked. It's actually later than I actually heard the song, but first I just saw the pictures and I just remember it forever. For some reason, it just really like, oh, what is this thing? Like, what is going on? Who is she? What is she doing? What did she win? Eurovision? Oh my God, I need to see that. And yeah, I was around, I would say 10 years old. What did you think when you kind of saw it all together? The performances, the scoring, the whole show? What did it, how did you feel? Well, I became a real fan in 2003. That was like the first year that I remember that I was like listening all the songs online, like downloading the songs. Not sure if that was like the legal way or not. I don't remember. But like I was like listening to the songs and I loved it because I have always loved different languages, different cultures, different styles of music. And for me, Eurovision was like this combination of everything. Like I was able to learn songs in different languages and I was able to see those amazing performances and outfit changes. It has everything. Like it's like my whole world, <laughs> you know, like, oh, like all the sides of my and all the parts of my world are like <clears throat> everything in Eurovision. <laughs> So, and did and did you think I want to do that one day? Oh, yes, of course. Like because actually the first time I tried to do that was in 2004, so only one year later. So that was pretty quick. <laughs> oh, so so yeah, so you tried to get in 2004 and then it yeah, was in, and then you had to wait a long time till it actually happened. Yes, I was in a girl group in 2004 and we were in the Finnish finals but we were not selected. So yeah, then another try for me was in 2010, six, year six years later, but I was not chosen for the TV show. So 2011 was when I did Blessed with Love and I came second on the Finnish pre-selection show. So that was very close, but not yet. <laughs> so so it was... Yeah, so it took a long time, but yeah, it, was it, it was always destiny. It was always yes. going to happen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it took a long time, that's for sure. Who did you see um, that really represented the LGBTQ plus community on the Eurovision stage? Something that really like a big memory for me was when, when Eurovision was in Finland 2007 and Serbia won. And for me, even though she wasn't like, I, I think she wasn't out publicly at that time. No, she wasn't. But, Not at the time. Yeah, exactly. But for me so proud that she won and and so for me that was like probably the first moment when I kind of connected all the dots <laughs> in my head and like yeah and since then it's just I, I I've asked lots of people this but why why do you think it does connect so well to the community I think it's the acceptance like the the, the atmosphere of acceptance like everybody is allowed to be who they are like all the performances are so different they're all so out of the box like it's not like you have to be like this and perform like this and wear outfits like this but it's like everybody can be who they are so I think that is a very very beautiful atmosphere I think the main thing is the love and the acceptance and everybody feels welcome You 
got to go to a beautiful city, Lisbon. I mean, all the Eurovision host cities are beautiful, but Lisbon is is really, really spectacular. And people know that it's not just the grand final and the semi-finals. There's all the parties. There's all the shows. This was before COVID. There's there's all the fans to meet. What was the experience, the whole experience like for you? Well, to be honest, at that time, I was living a very hectic time of my life. Like I was performing everywhere all the time I was so busy and people were like telling me like oh Sarah Eurovision is so hard it's so busy it's like you're gonna be so tired but for me when I went there I was like oh my god I have my own hotel room for two weeks and I it's like it was like a holiday for me like is this busy like I'm just waiting for my turn like but of course, I mean, it is busy. But for me, I was coming from such a hectic life, like after X Factor and everything. I was just like, Ooh. for me, it was kind of like a break <laughs> in between everything, which is crazy. But in general, the whole, the vibe is amazing. Like all the little performances that I got to do around the town, I mean, around the city, <laughs> were, were so amazing. All the contestants, like the atmosphere was so supportive so nice getting into the finals which Finland never really does was like that was like for me the biggest moment that was like we achieved the goal that we were there to do and yeah it, it was it was nice very very nice yeah when I describe Eurovision to people who've never been, I do compare it to pride in a way, just in terms of being able to be somewhere where you can be yourself and you are amongst so many uh, other people who feel the same way as you. You know, there's a lot. Of, it's cheesy, I know, but there is a lot of love at Eurovision, isn't oh, there? Did you feel that? Yes, and cheesy is good. I love cheesy. so <laughs> And I'm proud of it. And yeah, there is there is so much love. And to be honest, I, I can't wait to be on the other side. Like, I want to participate as a as an audience member. Like, I just want to experience it as, as, as this pride kind of party. Because when you are performing, it's still a bit different. You know, you kind of have to be very focused. And, and, and you can't really just go around and see the city and see all the different parties. You kind of do what you have in your schedule. But I would love to participate as, a, as an audience member. Well, it's in the UK next year. So wherever it's going to be, you could you could come along, have a gay old time. You could do like one of the parties and perform as well. So you're still performing a little bit. That, that would be perfect. And I think I'll be there. I think, sorry, you're still one of the only people who's performed on the Eurovision stage upside down. Aren't that you? is true. Because basically you were on a, like a wheel of death yes. and you turned all the way upside down. And I'm trying to think, I don't think there's ever been a contestant. I'm sure somebody listening will go, no, in one year there yeah. was. But yeah, you actually sang upside down, which is a feat in itself. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you want to hear a story? Yes, please. This is awful. This is my worst moment on stage. And it, but it was in the semifinals. So when I'm going around with the wheel... I am attached to the wheel by belt. The belt is kind of like attached to my dress and the belt is, yeah, attached to the wheel. And just before we went on stage, the belt didn't work. It didn't open. So basically that would mean that when I go around, after I have been going around, my dancer comes and opens the belt so I can 
get going and singing and dancing and the belt didn't open so we were like in a panic backstage like this is five minutes before I went on stage and we were trying to decide do we just skip the whole going around or if I go around and the belt doesn't open I'm gonna be stuck in the wheel for the rest of the song and I can't move anywhere that was awful and the production team brought us a banana a banana because they right. were like you have to rub the banana because it's oily to the belt so then maybe it opens with the banana oil <laughs> are you joking is no, this true this is actually true they actually brought us a banana and and the delegation people from finland were literally crying in a corner because they were so like so scared like they were like this performance is ruined and i was like i was like in a panic but who saved the situation was my wife she was so calm she was like okay everybody take the banana away i'm gonna open the belt let's see what is going on and if this is three minutes before the show she comes and she she sees that the belt is upside down so basically the lock has to be opened the other way around so she is very clever and she was like okay she was like teaching the dancer like how to open the belt the other way around so and the, so they got it open and we decided to do the whole performance as planned but the poor dancer he was literally praying the whole time i was going upside down because he was like i have practiced for months to open the belt that way but now i have to open it back upside down and he was just praying that he was able like that, that that he would be able to open the belt and he did it and you can see it if you watch the semi-final performance you can see that we are laughing smiling like we are like we just survived something when 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 he opens the belt and i start to sing like i ain't scared no more and i start to walk and i'm like ah, i'm out i'm out and nobody knew that it was like the scariest moment of my life i love that your wife saved your eurovision life there we go. Yes, and I'm so proud of her. She was like the only one who was able to keep her nerves and be like, let's figure this out. <laughs> well, mm. what, I'd, what I'd say, Sara, is people mm. like yourself and Conchita and Sheldon, these are pe you are all members of the LGBT plus community who uh, you are giving representation to people at home. Do you know what I mean? You are people that other ones at home that maybe can't be who they are or are discovering themselves, see somebody who is out and proud doing their thing on stage in in whatever way they want to do it how does that make you feel to be almost like uh just just amazing representation um well i feel very grateful that i get to do this in this lifetime that i i get to help people by being myself and for me authenticity and being true to myself they're like the most important values for me and I and I'm very honored and very grateful that I get to help people by by being myself that is such a beautiful gift that I get to give to people and I hope those people are giving it you know away to other people as well and it's like a ripple effect I'm glad you you enjoyed your Eurovision experience what a ride it was yes, it, it was ah <laughs> oh, so emotional <laughs> that's it virgin radio pride 
Big thank you to Sara Alto for chatting to us all the way from Finland. Now, over the last 25 years, ever since Paul Oscar represented Iceland as an openly gay man, there have been so many out and proud LGBTQ plus contestants. But there was way more queer history connected to the contest before then. And to get more on this, I know exactly the person to speak to. I'm Catherine Baker and I'm reader in 20th century history at the University of Hull. So Catherine, how far back can you trace the contest to the LGBTQ plus community? The difference is at that time, before 1997, it was a case of LGBTQ people having to look at Eurovision and interpret what they saw through LGBTQ plus lenses. And, you know, this historically is the way that LGBTQ people always have engaged with popular culture before there was open representation. We can go all the way back to 1961 and the Luxembourg's winner that year, Nule Amuro, which was sung by Jean-Claude Pascal. Now, this is about two lovers who are having a difficult time in their community. They're dreaming of a time when they can get away and be together. And, you know, but God is on their side when it comes to love. The gender of the lovers isn't mentioned in the song at all. Anyone looking at it through an LGBTQ plus lens would probably have picked up that meaning. So, you know, it was what we could call queer coded. I think later on, Pascal did go on to say that it had been meant to have that kind of meaning. But, you know, at the time in 1961, it was coded, it was there to see if you wanted to see it, and yet it went under the radar of the straight majority to whom at the time it would not have been acceptable to be openly singing about homosexuality on something that was thought of as a family show. Might be hard to pinpoint it, but when did people realise that the contest had an LGBTQ plus following? When did people realise that they could connect over this? Fans were already joining the dots. As soon as LGBTQ plus fans got together, started having Eurovision parties, for instance, you know, whether it was having friends around to their places, whether it was in bars, which once it was actually possible for, you know, bars to keep up their social life without getting bothered by the police all the time, putting on a Eurovision party could be, you know, one of those annual rituals. And, you know, it's a, a celebration that comes around every year. You can take part in it with your found family. You know, there are fans for whom for decades now, you know, Eurovision has been something that sticks out in their calendar of the year, you know, almost the way that Christmas does, for instance. And, you know, many people would say, well, you know, Christmas is one of the other very camp times of the year. Just speaking personally, when did you see representation that you connected with? One of my favourite times when I felt represented in Eurovision probably is 2018 and Sarah Alto was singing Monsters. Now, the thing about the figure of the monster in queer culture is, you know, we spend so much of our early lives being told we are monsters sometimes, and it leaves a mark on a lot of us. So there's power in reclaiming the image of the monster in queer culture, you know, just like Lady Gaga famously did, for instance. And, you know, Sarah's song does that as well. 
I remember during the broadcast, you could see her sitting in the green room with her fiancé, who she's now married to. And only five years before that, Krista Siegfried had been at Eurovision, appealing for the Finnish Parliament to let there be a vote on equal marriage. So, you know, it was special in, you know, that little moment of Eurovision history anyway. And then for me, 2018 was the first contest which I watched together with my girlfriend. And we are now engaged as well. Ah, oh, congratulations. What a nice story, uh, especially as we, we just heard from Sarah. It's almost like things come full circle. Big thank you to Catherine Baker, who is a cultural historian, uh, teaches 20th century history at the University of Hull. Here we go! Virgin Radio Pride. I'm going to turn to a friend now who proves that Eurovision and the LGBTQ plus love spreads around the world. His name is Ahmad Haloun, and we've known each other through Eurovision for a couple of years now. He is a Lebanese-Venezuelan who lives in Spain but is the head of press for the Czech Republic. Have you got your head around that? I have, almost, I think. And this year he worked with We Are Domi on this banger. Where are you now when I miss you? You're sailing around in Where are you now? Where are you now? Where are you now? You are fully in the Eurovision bubble. How much do you love working for Eurovision, the Czech Republic, doing press for the Czech delegation? Well, you know, so many people have like this cliche that they say, oh, uh, find a job that you love and you don't have to work the rest of your life, something like that. You know, normally you believe it's for rich white ladies who want to make jewelry or get into interior design, but no, it is true. <laughs> It is, I mean, sometimes it's stressful because you, it's a competition in the end and you really want to do your best, uh, at least I do. Um, and when you're in there, you know, you don't have much time. You, you constantly are organizing things, but you really, really, really love it. When did you first realize that you loved this massive thing? Por la mar, 2003, maybe, back in Venezuela. You don't really understand yourself when you're, I mean, I was... Uh, 11 years old or yet yeah, almost 12 years old so that was the first time but when i saw it i constantly i just got hooked um eurovision 2003 watching tattoo perform startup erener the voting everything it just hooked me and yeah i love it since then The more I grew, the more I, you know, grew old and got more involved in Eurovision, I loved it more and more. Because Eurovision was that place where a queer Arab Latino person growing up, you know, at that time, now people are so lucky that they have so much representation on Netflix shows and the new stream services. Like there is more queer representation. When I grew up, I didn't have that. So all the representations that we had was this, you know, cliche people that, uh, you know, where uh, all the gay people were extremely flamboyant or were really hairdressers only. 
And I was like, I'm not that type, but there's something wrong with me. So when I started to get into the Eurovision fandom and I met my very good friend Christopher and he's like, oh, but he's a teacher. Oh no, but he's a doctor and he is also like, and I was like, this is possible. Like you can be gay and, and you know, have a family. Then it was like, oh, they get married. How is that possible? You know, I didn't know that when I got into Eurovision and I saw these people who Eurovision fans, let's say, adopted me and they show me uh, a, a way of living that I didn't know it existed. What would you say was your strongest LGBT plus memory of Eurovision? What do you think has been a real big moment for Eurovision for the queer community? I think Christus Kiss on 2013 from Finland. I love Christus Ingfrits. Um And Conchita Burst being that icon. I don't know how to describe Conchita. It was that icon, that moment. It was huge. I felt so powerful, not only with the performance, with her giving it all, but also the community that I had behind me. I had met these people for years and it was the first time I met them in person and that they were real friends and they were real people and they stood by me. It was amazing. So for me, Conchita Wurst also was one of the biggest icons for that. So you were there in 2014 in Copenhagen. What was the atmosphere like when Conchita won? It was beautiful because we wanted Conchita to win, but we didn't know it was possible. I say we did it because I think it was the win for the whole community. Everyone was so happy. I don't think anyone, I don't think even the Dutch people were angry they came second that year. Everyone was so happy to see Conchita winning. And it was fantastic. It was brilliant. It was one of those moments you can, yeah, you just remember and you feel it. It was beautiful. But you're my As a gay man, how many times have you watched Chanel's slow-mo since the contest finished? Three times, maybe? So we did the whole promo tour together. I've seen that choreography a hundred million times. I see people, I, I go to clubs here and they play it on the screen, so I watched it. Why Chanel's performance can be a gay icon or really strong, you know, that LGBTQ plus community moment was because Chanel was giving us what we need we need empowerment we need perfection we need strength that many people in our community i mean you see me i'm very talkative but i can be very insecure and i can be very you know sad at sometimes uh this type of performance fills me with the energy we need and showing people that a woman can be strong because the community um, or gay men and, and gay women or the community itself, we are a minority and we are being discriminated against as many women are discriminated against as well. So seeing a woman owning it and showing people her power, her strength and what she can do, give us the hope that I can do amazing things as well. So she, it was an empowerment not only for uh, little girls or Spanish girls watching it but for everyone who feels belittled sometimes of 
have been discriminated against, we can do that. We can shine. And that's what Chanel did. I think we should listen to her. Let's have a listen to Chanel Slow-Mo. Honestly, there have been so many amazing Eurovision moments over the years and iconic performances. I'm sure you've got your favourite. Could it be Chanel with Slow Mo? Is it Eleni Ferreira with Fuego for Cyprus? Or is it Lorene with Euphoria winning for Sweden in 2012, 10 years ago now? The contest holds such a special place in the hearts of many for so many reasons. I promised we'd hear once more from Sheldon Riley. He represented Australia at this year's event in Turin. Uh, this is a platform that has completely changed my life for so many reasons, even more than music or even more than followers or fans or whatever. Moving past that, I wore a mask for a really long time. I hated, hated the way I looked, hated the way I, I would see myself in the mirror every day. And the only way I ever felt comfortable performing my music was if I hid my face. And this was the first the first time ever after all these things I've done that I was able to take it off and be like this is the space that I feel comfortable enough to be exactly who I am and it's okay it doesn't mean I love myself to death now it doesn't mean I think I'm the most gorgeous person ever but this platform and this this competition has made me weirdly just remind myself that I am completely fine the way that I am and there are people that pay thousands of dollars in, in in therapy over many years to try and come up with what is this what is this answer what is this thing that's going to save me and um eurovision did that for me it completely opened my eyes to go hey you are so you're so loved and so worth everything that you do so I hope you've enjoyed the last hour exploring the LGBTQ plus connections to the Eurovision Song Contest. You can find the official Eurovision Song Contest podcast on all major podcast platforms. My name is Steve Holden and I know it's the summer, but before you know it, the 2023 contest will be here and it's going to be held in the UK for the first time since 1998. You've been listening to Virgin Radio Pride does Eurovision. That's it. Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all.